Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alexandra Al Silber, and welcome to the Theater Podcast with Alan Seals. Hey everyone, welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I am Alan Seals, your host as always, and our guest today is Alexandra Silber, or Al, as she goes by uh, non-professionally. We actually got into a really interesting conversation between, in her, as she puts it, the difference between Alexandra professionally and Al personally, and how she's developed this thing called an exit practice, which allows her basically to ritualize putting on and then taking off is the exit practice part of it, taking off and leaving behind at the theater, the difficult feelings, the emotions, the stories behind some of the, the content that she has to do as part of the shows she's been in and is currently in. And between recording this episode and releasing it, I actually did get to go see our class at the at BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, where this is performing off-Broadway, and the show, as she describes it, it's just incredible, and we get into the scripted exit practices that uh, that are put into the show so that, that the audience doesn't get too overwhelmed with some of this stuff as well, and I think it's, it's brilliant, so I hope you can go see it, I hope you can check out Al, and get to experience this all for yourself. Find me online in all the normal places, like you always do. Leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends, help spread the word, help the podcast grow. And everybody, now please enjoy this episode with Alexandra Silber. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's Grammy-nominated guest has performed roles on Broadway, The West End, and on TV and film, and, of course, many concert stages. Her Broadway debut was in 2011 in the production of Masterclass and may most notably be remembered as Seidel in the 2015 revival of Fiddler on the Roof. On the West End, she created the role of Laura Fairley in The Women Woman in White, played Hoddle in a 2007 production of Fiddler on the Roof, was Julie Jordan in 2008, in a production of Carousel, and she's also 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 she's also an author. <laughs> she's also an author, having <laughs> penned both a popular novel and memoir, and can now be seen in the limited off-Broadway run of Our Class in the role of Rachela. I hope I said that right. Sorry, Rachelka. Alexandra Silber, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. That was wow. You know, sometimes sometimes when you I don't know if this, you ever feel this way where you're like, I 
in my head, just like watch crime shows with my cat at home. And then you're like, I wonder if I've done anything with my life. And then I hear that and I'm like, oh, I have. <laughs> Listen, I, okay, okay. I, I, when people say this, and I, I like to point to Andre DeShields' Tony acceptance speech uh-huh. because uh, he said the, be, the the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next, right? So you're, all, yeah. you're always continuing to go. And I want to add to that and say, don't forget to turn around when you're at the top of the first mountain to see how far you've come. Oh, I love that. That's really good. So there you go. Take that with you today. Okay, I will. No, that's really, that's really good. Okay. And also, Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I just want to like... Alexandra seems so weird to say. You're just Al. You're Al Sibs. I'm Al. Yeah, you're, I know. You're just Al. Every go by Al. Uh, is, was it's, that? It's really funny though because, so you know, I don't know if this if this resonates at all. Like I've always been Al, and really? oh yeah, like since teeny babyhood. And there have been. It's really funny though how like Alexandra can make certain people like really uncomfortable. Like at school, they were like they just named me Alex, and I was like, that's not my name. But I wasn't quite bold. I was very shy. wasn't quite bold enough to be like, um, Alex is deeply not my name. But I was my name for ten years of elementary into middle school. And then what's really funny is I remember thinking, oh, Al, I'll outgrow Al when I get to high school. I'll I'll become Al when I. I'll become Alexandra when I get to college, when I get to my career. And at every interval, um, I've arrived into the world as Al Silber. And I know I might sound like a lawyer or a mechanic, but it's my name. <laughs> well, then why why then when when you first get your equity card and you have to choose your stage name, why go mm-hmm. with Alexandra? Because it's also my name. And I, I have well, to say, I love I love Alexandra. And it does feel like me. And it's actually, you know, it's a really interesting question since I know you talk a lot about mental health stuff and perspective things. I think there's something kind of healthy about it. I think it's a projection of boundaries in a certain way. There is an Alexandra Silver. Mm. And there's also Al. And it's not that Alexandra Silver isn't me. She is apps everything about her, I'm putting in huge quotes. Um, is true and honest. It's just a very limited slice of me. And Al is an intimacy and a bid for connection and friendship that is something that I elect to bring into my colleagueships and work relationships and friendships at at a pace that feels good to me. But, you know, if you meet Alexandra Silber on a red carpet, you're not meeting someone fake or a persona. It's just a very a name for a very thin slice of who I am, and I I actually find that quite helpful. That's so cool, and that that jumps me ahead to something that I was going to ask later after we cover some of the roles you've done. But, I mean, Be- here we are now. But here we are. No, yeah. and and this is great because hashtag natural conversation. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm a dad. I say the word hashtag. So listen, the roles you have taken, including Rahelka. In mm-hmm. our class, uh, the, the like um, playing um, multiple roles in multiple productions of Fiddler, and and you you're into Greek tragedies, and like you you have adapted some of these, and we'll get into all that. But the 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 roles that I particularly know you for are heavy and deep, and and very like you have to to dive into your gut and pull out emotion and and to bring the authenticity to the stage eight times a week yeah. while knowing you personally and 
and having spent a little time with you outside of a theater and um I mean watching interviews and stuff even preparing for this like right now you're you're smiling you're happy you're goofy you're like you're this great uh kind of opposite I want to say it is the opposite of these roles that you sink your teeth into so yeah. along with what you just said like what part of you is satisfied is what do you need to fulfill by diving oh, into these deep roles what a great question. I have to say, by the way, I don't think in my entire career anyone's ever asked me this question in this way. So this is exciting. Um, yes. Okay. Let's start with a couple things. We contain multitudes. Two, many things can be true at the same time. Mm. And I think that's actually one of the great explorations of our modern day is, and one of the things fueling polarization in a lot of areas is a uh, refusal to welcome in the truth and the discomfort, the exquisite discomfort that multiple things being true at the same time provides the human mind and soul, that really it, it can be exquisitely painful for two things to be true, two things, four things, six things to be true at the same time. Right. Because the human psyche craves above all else clarity and comfort. So I'll just, that's, that's another soapbox to get onto. But I will say, you know, to, to say that I've been through some adverse things in my life, um, not that it's, you know, a, an adversity Olympics, it doesn't compare to some of the things we're seeing play out on the global stage. Of course, I did not grow up in a war zone, etc. But I think um, probably some above average for the comfortable Westerner person uh, before the age of 40. And I think one of the things that I had beautifully modeled for me by my parents, one, um, and I think ultimately is the greatest gift they gave me in their parenting was unconditional love and this, was modeling how hope is a function and a response to struggle. And that by showing me hope how to is keep a hoping. response to struggle. Okay, go get it. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that like struggle is inevitable. There are people out there that avoid a struggle, that avoid discomfort, that do everything in their power to shirk from it, to perpetuate clarity and comfort. And what I felt was really modeled for me in my youth and in my growing up was, no, struggle will, will befall us. Struggle is here. How do we respond? And uh, not necessarily joy, but certainly hope as a response to struggle was something that was modeled for me. And I think the joy is a choice. The awe is a choice that which radical awe is also sort of fueled by my world outlook and my spirituality. And I think um, I feel so in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I, I publicly talked about my health a lot online in the last few years and my overcoming some health things. I think I also just feel so gosh darn lucky to just have the gift of being alive. Hmm. Um, that you I had a real well. severe case of IBS, right? Uh, it's well, not even IBS. IBS is sort of tummy trouble. Right. It's still very debilitating. I had um, irritable bowel disease, which is uh, I had a, a really debilitating form of ulcerative colitis, which is can be life threatening, and mine was um, really, really off the charts and. Wow. Um, 
the just it's actually maybe a good moment to say like the IBS and IBD are very they're they're obviously cousins but they're very distinct things one is a response to digestive trouble and one really is a autoimmunity response and a an inherent disease that's like a very different function of the body Hmm. um, with similar symptoms so that's a it's something that's really tough because it took a long time to diagnose but um yeah I think I'm just so so happy to be here. And yet, you know, just to talk about the the tragedy and the access to sorrow and to grief and to anger, these are not things that we get out and look at very often in our everyday, like running errands life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you had, it's, I always find it so amazing about like where it is acceptable to behave in certain ways that um, if you had a complete mental breakdown at the bank, you'd be escorted out by security. And if you have one center stage on a Broadway theater, at a Broadway theater, you'd get an award. Yeah. Like that's just like such a strange, <laughs> right. isn't that strange, right? Um, but again, it's like about these circles of of where things happen and where things don't happen. But that exists in every era, area of our lives. But one of the things I think is really such a gift is that we all have access to sorrow, anger, envy, violence, hatred, joy, uh, bursting out in song. Those are things that every human being, regardless of who they are, have access to in the emotional spectrum of being a person. Um, And that's emotional diversity. We tend to, particularly in Western countries, exceptionally in America, prefer heavily positive emotions on that spectrum. And by denying the existence of or fully experiencing the other emotions, we're robbing ourselves of the other colors in that rainbow that provide true emotional diversity. And I think for me, while I do experience those feelings in my actual life, there is a portal, a stage, a sandbox, and and a permission in these roles and on stages to go to the wall of these extreme emotions of sorrow and rage and anger emotions that are not often celebrated and uh, welcome them into my life and hopefully also give the audience, the human beings in the audience permission to see themselves in the emotions that I'm portraying as part of the human experience. They, they belong to us all. I feel like you, you've, got this, you've got this need to, a healthy need to embrace sorrow and to embrace... Um, Kind of the lowlights of life uh because it gives it gives you perspective because you don't know you're hot unless you've been cold you don't know you're in unless you've been out you don't know you're yes. truly happy without experiencing true sadness you know what i mean does I, that make sense i com- completely agree i mean it's why the greatest tragedian tragedians in the world are clowns yes and it's you know it's and where they say often in any form of dramatic storytelling, stage, film, television, ballet, opera, that by inserting laughter or welcoming laughter into tragic story, it actually opens the heart to receive deeper, to receive more deeply the emotions on the other end of the spectrum. So it's important to include it. And I have to say, I think it's been one of my, just going back to our class for a moment, it's been one of my missions to hold on to include and in some ways highlight humor in this otherwise obliteratingly devastating story. And um, 
without humor, so many of us would would not survive. Our, yeah, our class is, is interesting, and I haven't seen it yet because you're, you're as we're recording this, you're still in rehearsals, and and yeah. in a few days you're going to start previews. But it's about ten Polish classmates based mm-hmm. on a true story. So five of these classmates are Jewish, five are Catholic, and they grew up as friends and neighbors, and then turn on each other with life and death death consequences. Like that that sounds ridiculously h- hard to watch. Yeah, it's. I can't imagine that. <laughs> That it will be, it it will feel like beautiful medicine, I think. It's going to be exquisite to look at. It is already exquisite to look at. I one of the things I, I talk about a lot is the 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 10 acting performances that we've that we have, the 10 actors and their performances are first rate, world class, from every corner of the world in terms of literal location, training, background experience, all coming together in this incredibly diverse group. So that's going to be phenomenal. But additionally, every member of the creative team is like some combination of a gold medal Olympian slash the Beyonce of their field. Like every single thing that you hear, see, observe, smell is going to be designed by somebody that's the best in the world at what they do. And that has also been sort of insane So all of those artistic contributions will make sure that this storytelling and this difficult story is experienced in a way that is, that we're actually able to digest it. Here's the thing. I myself um, will admit, by the way, that I, I find consuming art that's really, really confrontational and difficult, that feels timely, that feels like it's about contemporary events. I, I really have to get my head on straight, uh, before I, and, and be emotionally prepared to engage with that kind of art these days and have found myself really understanding the idea of entertainment and escapism more than I ever have before. These are unprecedented times and I'm ready to live in precedented times. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So, yes, please. Uh, but um, what I'll say is one of the things I think is really, really interesting about making art that has to do with hatred and violence tell me if you agree with this too you know how do you make a play about hatred i think for i was i was talking about this with a journalist the other day um which of course is a slightly different i mean not slightly it's a very different form of storytelling Mm -hmm. um i think there's a journalism rule that is a good rule right now that says we, when tragedy strikes, we should not center the perpetrators. We should center the victims and their memories. And that's really important because we should not create celebrities or cult heroes out of these violent perpetrators. I think Mm -hmm. that's right in journalism. But it's interesting. I think we've sort of followed that, certainly in the late 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st century. I think we followed that suggestion with art which actually isn't quite the same directive, right? We have we serve different purposes in society, journalists and artists. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this play is it dares to not necessarily center the bad guys, I put in huge quotes, but it presents them, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that exact atrocities and how their emotional logic allows them to arrive at the doorstep of these choices that are either actions or inactions that seem 
unconscionable. And rather than distance ourselves as human beings and go, I think often, you know, for, for close to 100 years now, the Nazi has been a, almost a, a synonym for the word bad guy, mm-hmm. right? As if they're not human, as if a Nazi is not somebody that was ever a human being, was some kind of animal, was devoid of, and, uh, and therefore we distance ourselves and say things like, once upon a time, long ago and far away, they did bad things and that has nothing to do with us. We solved that and it's over. And I think that what's really, really uh, dangerous about that is that we can fall under the spell of thinking that we are somehow different, more evolved, or completely absolved from that thinking and behavior that exists latently within us as human animals. And so a more interesting question that I think Igor Goliak, our director, is requiring each of us in the company to address is rather than going, that was then, they have nothing to do with me, go, what would it take for me to look away or to actively exact these actions? What would it take for me to get there? Because the getting there is inevitable inside my human and that if the violence connects us you're saying everybody has potential to do anything so it's all in us somewhere precisely hang on everybody we're just gonna take a quick break all right now we're back i think one of the things we also hold over people in certain eras political oppressions uh parts of the world is we hold other people to our morality and our experience of the world thus far. And it takes a very big and open-hearted and open-minded person to go, if I were there, how would reality shift? And what would I even be able to choose to do? Because we have this phrase that's like, there's always a choice, but that isn't always true. We have a choice about how we view things. We have a choice about how we respond. But when it comes to political regimes, when it comes to oppression, when it comes to life or death scenarios that many of us in the West have not faced, that might be less true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with you. And and the art, I, it's, this is interesting because the, the things being written and then the people performing these things are exploring parts of themselves that because we are privileged enough to live where we live and experience the the majority positive things, comparatively speaking, like you said, we didn't grow up in a war zone here in the States in this generation. So we don't get to, don't get, or, you know, get may not, not be the right phrase, but we don't understand what it's like to fear that we may get bombed walking to the grocery store. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, of course. So yeah, I, I it's it's tough. And how how then like in the rehearsal room or even the audition space do you dive deep enough or find people that are diving deep enough to really do this and then and then like 8 times a week is one thing, but when you're rehearsing like you're doing it 8 hours a day. Yeah. And so you're going here yeah. over and over and over again. Like what are 
I guess two parts of the question is like, where are you finding this to start with? And then at the end of it, what are you doing to bring Al back? Yeah. Like go from Alexandra back to Al. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah, you used it. Yeah. So I think that the, I, that's those are great questions. I think the first is that we have to understand that even though each of us individually as individual 10 actors with 10 paths have to deal with and respond to our character's path in, in our individual way, but that there's a responsibility, hopefully one we want, to take care of each other and to uplift one another and uh, acknowledge that we're uh, part of a kind of temporary family that has a different kind of responsibility doing something that's lighter, which is a different kind of responsibility. So I think that's part of it is that we have to be in this together. I've, I've been in productions where things have gone, have things have gone wrong in terms of dynamic. You know, you're in trouble when everybody in the room goes to their own individual corner and sits in their own pool of light. Hmm. That's usually an indicator that there's like a lack of community or safety or wanting to say the wrong thing. And one of the things that's been great about this process is you see as the scenes disperse when we're on breaks, there's pockets of people being together, which I think is a really good sign, you know. Then I think one of the things to your second point is it's really important to have sort of an exit practice with a play like this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a it's a phrase that's really become much more popular and conversant in the arts world since the rise of intimacy coordination as a profession. And I think it's a really, really important concept that your body, our bodies, don't know the difference between fact and fiction. They don't know that this isn't happening. And the only, you know, the same chemicals fire the same cortisol surges through our veins as if we're actually being attacked by a tiger, right? Our body doesn't go, oh, this is theatrical cortisol. <laughs> the only thing that's going to declare to your body that you are safe is the willingness of, your, of, of our conscious minds. And bringing that conscious mind into a calming practice that we then bring into our body connects the conscious thought to the chemical productions in our bodies and actually creates a, oh, there is no tiger, there is no danger, this was a play, and now calming, soothing things can fill my body, and I'm the director of what's going to happen in my chemicals post-show. So I have like a little ritual, especially for some of the tougher things I've done. I remember first doing it when I played Julie Jordan, and I, I will say, Julie Jordan, when I, when I played her, I was 25. And really, at the beginning of my career, it was only my third professional show. And obviously, a huge legacy and a huge responsibility and a really dark track. And um, it was definitely before I had this practice in place. And I will also say... I had not really fully processed my father's death and was inappropriately using Julie's story and arc and uh, to, to, to work out my grief hmm. in a way that was not art 
right? In a way that I will admit now, I'm like, oh, no, that was therapeutic. And it was not creation. It was just expression using another character's words and scenario. And and I the reason I even talk about it is because I think it's really important for people that know actors or people that are actors listening to this or wish to be professional actors to know, like, I am not sitting here at this stage of my career going, I'm infallible and I've always been infallible. No, like, I've I've messed up and I've learned the hard way how to get this right. And at the sort of nine month mark in Carousel, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I can't keep opening my veins for this. The artist has to be more important than the art or else the art can't perpetuate. The health of the artist is paramount, right? And I started to create a practice where I actually bought a welcome mat for my dressing room for myself where I wiped my feet three times and like bid farewell to Al, walked into my dressing room, became Julie Jordan. And when I left for the night, I wiped my feet and left Julie at the theater and it worked. Hmm. That's very cool. It was very simple, but it was ritualistic. And, you know, when it comes to ritual, I think it's an interesting thing. I, I know you talk a lot about wellness and mental health and ritual, I think, is a huge part of wellness and mental health as well as oftentimes part of spirituality like you know there are so many things that have entered our lexicon from like shabbat candles to catholic you know everybody knows like and also with you there are things that become ritualistic what does that mean for me ritual is both in a spiritual space and in a theatrical space which have a lot of crossovers it's about carving into space and time that this moment though seemingly identical, is special from another moment. I think that those kinds of rituals can really, really help actors separate the artist from the art, which is an important separation because without a whole artist, the art cannot perpetuate. I cannot agree more. I want to add as well that I find it admirable that you still... You still like you are an artistic person person and by that i mean that you have to express yourself in one way or another but in a healthy way i believe that you're not you know you're not all in on the on performing because you you can't be your job otherwise when you don't have a job when you're not working you're you judge your worth based on that like that's not healthy and you're also an educator and and going back to being an author as well right you you've got these um like always just this need to write and to express and and i i just i love that about you in that Thank like when you. you when you're looking for like that creative outlet you just you you create the creative outlet because yeah. writing is writing is taking from your from nothing and putting it down yeah. for others it's thank you that's such a generous thing to say first of all i'm so touched by that i do feel that there is a creative engine inside me and i guess the educator part of me wants to say to your audience like it's a great question to ask yourself what is the shape of the engine and what is its fuel those are because mm. an engine can't run without fuel right yeah um, th those are great questions to ask yourself because I think they can change. They can alter over time. 
you can start to discover that you thought the engine was this shaped and actually it's this shaped. You thought the fuel was this, but actually it's this. It runs better on diesel, whatever, you know. So I, I, I think that's an important thing. For me, writing and acting feel very, very much like the yin and yang of, of who I am. Despite, people are always very surprised when I tell people that I'm extremely introverted. And I'm, because I think people have like a misperception of what introversion actually is, which is like, you know, I think they have pejorative things about like, it's aloof and people hating and shy and it can present in those ways. But really at its core, introversion is about where an individual gets their energy. Do they get it from others? Or do they get it in solitude, recharging, like a, you know, being plugged into the wall? And I am a person that experiences life very deeply and needs to think and experience and process life very deeply and very slowly, which can, for me, can only be done in solitude. So I need lots and lots of time alone. But I love people. I, my favorite kind of conversation and dynamic is exactly what we're having, which is one-on-one. But I also love parties and it has nothing to do with um, the way I feel about other human beings. I find human beings fascinating. But what I'll say is this, in terms of the yin and yang, theater, specifically theater, as an actor, theater is an art form that by its nature and by its original intent and design is an art form that must be created and consumed socially. You cannot make theater without others and you cannot experience theater outside of experiencing it with others. That is the design currently. I mean, you know, a lot of people are exploding the form all the time, but that is, you know, when we think about like, you know, ancient, the ancient Greeks, that was its function. It was for group catharsis. And that can mean collaboration at its very, very best. It can also mean collaboration at its very, very worst and most adverse. So there are pros and cons to being with people, always. And on the inverse, literature, specifically novel writing, but literature and writing in most of its forms, at least in the creating of it, is created and consumed in solitude. Hmm. And it's a really, for me, a really beautiful yin and yang, where there's a part of me that is so fired up by the joys of collaboration and the joys of being in the company of other human beings and making art that exists in that space. And there's also equal joy, just um, the opposite end of the creative spectrum uh, of speaking completely directly to an audience of one in the theater of their imagination and nothing else. It feels incredibly intimate and incredibly personal And I mean, think about, it's funny, I think we sometimes like, you know, obviously we're theater people and this is a theater podcast, but (laughs) think about some of the books you've read and some of the, where you feel like you are in relationship to that author, to that narrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have relationships with John Steinbeck and Tolstoy and Zadie (laughs) Smith. Like, they, they have meant things to me, even though I've never met them. And I'm sure you have similar relationships in books you've read. It's, um, it's just incredibly intimate and personal. 
So I think for me, that's been a huge part of it, but it all comes back to using art and using the art of storytelling in these forms to reflect back human nature and the, the existence of humanity back onto itself for deeper exploration, greater understanding, and hopefully on some level, maybe in certain instances, social change. But that's always been the role of the artist. I'm not doing anything new. I right. might be like making new things, but the act of it is what society depends upon artists for. And certain messages of certain shows resonating in different times. Yeah. Just like you said, if we're living in unprecedented, unprecedented times and a story about something similar is going to resonate more now than it would previously when people can't pers make a personal connection to it. Absolutely. So I think to your point, that's why we're seeing a lot more now of, of exploring sort of these darker tragedies and reliving um, un unhappy times of history yeah. because I think we're on the verge or if we're not already there of kind of like as a society, you know, it's all coming for full circle again. And, and yeah. you've got modern politicians being compared to, you know, some of the leaders of the Nazis, and, you know, right. like it's pretty bad um, right. depending on who you are and how you view the world. And again, that goes back to what you said about your view of the world, what you are taught and feel is right or wrong. But, Anyway, that's a whole, a whole separate podcast. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. All right. Now we're back. I want to pivot back to, uh, we got a little bit of time left. I want to pivot back to actually your origin story because you mentioned Little Al. Um, so like, what was it originally that made you say, that is what I need to do. I need to be on the stage. And then I also don't want to forget the fact that you got your first musical theater gig without actually having a singing lesson. So well, that's, that's a little bit of a, it's not entirely true. Um, well, start with the origin story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think growing up, I love, you know, in terms of origin stories and I, one of the things I so, I was so excited to talk to you about is because I know, like I said, that that mental health is is something that you don't shy away from in these in these spaces of your interviews. I grew up in a very loving family, but the main event of my childhood was that my father was very sick with cancer. And I have a much older half-brother who's 15 years older than me, so we didn't grow up together. So I will just say that I also experienced the illness of my father with cancer as an only child in in isolation hmm. so you know interestingly i i think it kind of uh, paved the way for my two loves writing and acting in theater by creating a need in that little girl who first learned about and endured the fears of of her father being sick and possibly dying i was filled with enormous and huge questions. My father was diagnosed when I was nine. What is the nature of existence? What happens when we die? What is left for those who are left behind? I mean, like I'm nine thinking these questions and I couldn't talk to my nine-year-old pals about this, hmm. but I could talk to books. I could talk to Steinbeck and Tolstoy. I could talk to people that had similar questions and they, they gave me such deep and beautiful answers. And I, you know, interestingly, also, I, I mentioned 
adult authors, but also children's authors that were operating in very, very deep spaces like Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden, a musical that then became hugely important to me in my youth as well. But The Secret Garden was was you know if you if you think about it like we think about it in such oh it's a children's book but it's about an orphan who's dealing who's who moves completely out of her universe without the guidance of her parents and learns that nature can heal the sick i think there was a part of me that thought like mary lennox maybe i could do that for my father and it didn't end up working hmm. these are deep and profound things right like were you were you personally like feeling like you could enact this healing power over him at that time? I thought the, that it presented the possibility, and I felt so powerless otherwise. Why not try everything? Wow! You know, the magician's nephew uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's it's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. A, a young man travels to the ends of the earth to get an apple to potentially heal his ailing mother. These were books that spoke to me, right? And where I got profound intellectual and philosophical answers, I put in quotes, to these questions in books and in literature, I was also filled to the eyeballs with huge emotion about everything that was happening. And again, talking about um, appropriate spaces, it, this wasn't something I could express in the middle of like algebra. You know, I, I needed to know where I could put these feelings and their hugeness. And for me, the theater was a space that's so divinely, to me, it's, it's truly divine. Not only is that level of emotion safe and welcome in a theatrical space, but it is also utterly necessary to execute the art form at all, hmm. which makes it totally unique. And I sometimes talk about this emotional contract with people that are not necessarily in the arts in the uh, in a physical metaphor i use dance as a metaphor because i think it sometimes physical is a little easier um the emotional equivalent is in this physical metaphor if you think about ballet dancers that are partner dancing they have to touch one another in the rehearsal room and on stage in parts of the body that if you if they touched in public spaces it wouldn't be appropriate mm -hmm. but again in the rehearsal room with the understanding of the contract between them and on stage, not only do they touch in those spaces freely, but it's necessary to execute the lifts at all. And that physical metaphor feels very apt for what's emotionally required of actors in similar spaces. Whoa, you just kind of blew cool? my mind a little bit. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. So, oh, oh God, I love, I love that perspective. And I, I, it actually helps me a little bit because one of my one of my um, best best friends from high uh, yeah high school high school and into college and we're still in touch today. He he and I are basically the same person. And he told me once though the difference between us is that when I meet people, I assume they want to be friends with me as much as I want to be friends with them. Whereas like I'm going in with the with the assumption that they like me because I like them. And so he said he's he's gonna he's a cynical guy. Very, um, you know, just like shy, much more reserved, shy and cynical. And so he said, the difference between he and I is that I go in saying, oh, I met you. I am want to like you. So you must want to like me. And he's the exact opposite. He's like, oh, they, I, I, I have to prove to them that they need to like me. They probably hate me. Right. And oh, I think that is, uh, 
I wonder, and the reason I bring this up is because I wonder if mm. that predisposes me, and if you're similar, I'm asking, is if you're the similar way in that it allows you to open the gates to get that connection that somehow, maybe consciously or not, is required to fulfill who you are, but through normal, average, everyday interactions, you're not allowed to get it because it's inappropriate or uncomfortable, I will say, uncomfortable for others. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really interesting proposition. And I think it's one of the things that, for example, I think it's one of the, the reasons that actors of all art forms, dancers, ice skaters, often enter into romantic partnerships, the showmance trope. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, they're sort of goaded and made fun of for it, but it's incredibly confusing. And we are put in completely false and fictitious situations of hyper intimacy and trust that on the one hand is false. And on the other hand, firewire, hot wires, a level of intimate connection that no other profession requires, maybe other than soldiers. Hmm. And, um, and so to be critical of it is to simply not fully understand it. But I think, I think that it's a particularly unique scenario. I love, by the way, that like this conversation has emerged out of my origin story. LOL. Like, like I was just thinking, like three minutes ago, we were talking about being nine, and here we. I just, I love it. But really interesting, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's why you know you, you hear people say, "Oh, I just clicked with that person," and I think there's a level of 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 trust, understanding, or just vulnerability that. Totally. Well, I don't know if it's pheromones, if it's in the eyes, if it's the soul. Like you can get as philosophical or as spiritual as you want, but there's sure. something there when two people yeah. meet and and they click on stage. And that's why even on TV and film, you have chemistry reads because that is real. Well, chemistry is real. Like I cannot. You know what? I I welcome everyone listening to ask themselves the following. Oftentimes we think about chemistry really in a romantic way, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think this gets misunderstood. So I welcome everyone listening to think about, do you have any children in your life where you go, I have love in my heart for this child. This child is just joy. I have no blood connection to them. They are just amazing. And we have the best time together. And other children in your life, you're like, that kid, I don't like them. <laughs> yep. You know why you feel that way? Because chemistry is real. Yeah. Chemistry yeah, yeah. is real, right? And I think sometimes when we remove the romantic component about it, it really helps us see that there are just chemical vibrations that occur between people, compatibility that is real. And I think sometimes thinking about children really helps you go, oh, right. Like, I just really get along with this kid. Interesting. That's, you know? a, really, that's a really good perspective. And, and going back to something you said earlier too, is that your body doesn't know the difference when you're putting yeah. yourself in a situation. So if you're being intimate with somebody either sexually or in a fight scene or, oh, yeah. uh, you know, something like this where, where your body is reacting to the chemicals your brain is putting out because you're actually, you know, making yourself go through this emotionally that, right. th yeah, that's that showmances make total sense because you're forcing yourself in a way to fall in love with somebody or to hate somebody or to, it's, to it's whatever it is. with the original sharks and jets you know like it's this is that's a very very famous infamous story of uh, a cast dynamic that emulated its stage dynamic potentially egged on by jerome robbins but our bodies don't know yeah and 
And it's why it's so important to take control of it. Interestingly, going back to our class, one of the things that's really beautiful and interesting about our production is there's a there's sort of a meta production occurring. You'll you come and see it, you'll see what we talk about. I am gonna where the fourth it. wall is broken often. And when violence is exacted, the actor personas often reassert themselves and check back in with the other actor inside the world of the play. Oh. So violence is exacted and perpetrator and victim actors reconnect and you see it break. And it is a really, really important thing to creating and dispersing tension throughout the evening as like storytellers, but it's yeah. also walking visual evidence of an exit practice, which you normally don't see because it's something that happens off stage. So it's a scripted exit practice. Yes, exactly. It's really interesting. That is interesting. Oh, I can't wait to see this. I really can't. And Bam is couple blocks away I, i'm oh, pointing good. at it right now um yeah i live very close so uh yeah was there one show when you were a kid though that that made you decide on on theater as a form of, mm. of profession or like because people can go into dance or they can go into art like painting yeah. or drawing or like you have talent as as well as, as being an author but yeah. was there a show that that you were like that's it yeah it's really interesting i'm i, I it's not a surprise to probably tell you that it was the secret garden mm. um and the thing that's so, I just want to say that's so important and special about it is I never saw The Secret Garden. I only ever heard the original cast recording, which is largely the entire score and and much of the dialogue. You know, it's, a, it's really its own radio play experience. It's incredibly self-contained. I think it was powerful on two, but for, for many reasons. The first of which is I had had a relationship with the book that felt deeply personal and I, I deeply identified with the protagonist. And I felt that there was a spiritual component of healing the sick that was very personal to me that I don't definitely didn't have the language to understand in that moment. And then something else that was really critical was the voice of Rebecca Luker, who brought a sound back from the 1960s to the 1990s Broadway stage that when I sang, I sounded like her. Hmm. And uh, it, my voice resembled hers. There, there was a soprano on Broadway and therefore this promise that potentially there was a place for me. And it's funny because you asked about my training and my singing. One of the things that was really interesting is it's not really accurate to say I never had voice lessons because I did. I had a wonderful voice teacher in my early teen years named Nina Mackis, and she's a total joy. And she also taught Douglas Sills. Um, she's in Metro Detroit. But largely my training was on the shows themselves. And I will also say that just the way some people can just draw, I definitely had a natural gift that required skill building, but it was very much a fluky gift. And it was something that I always viewed as a skill that was sort of like in addition to my other storytelling skills, it was just another way to tell stories. And I loved to sing, I still love to sing. 
But I never really thought about musical theater exclusively as a career path, which I think is probably why my career has been so horizontal, because I love to tell different kinds of stories, including musicals. Mm -hmm. I can find truth in so many different places, but The Secret Garden was very powerful for me on a lot of levels. And I think when I think about it too, the message of the story, um, it's not just about healing the sick. Oh God, I want to just hug little... 10 year old me and say it was also the place I learned that relationships with the departed keep going and that no matter what happened to my dad, I'd be okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Secret garden. I could see that. You know? Yeah. And yeah. that, that uh, there's a, there's a quote, you know, are, are these, are my parents ghosts? I hear someone crying, you know, I, are my parents ghosts? And Mandy Patinkin as Archibald Craven says, you know, they're only a ghost if someone alive is still holding on to them. And I don't know how I feel about ghosts, but I do think that um, it is our job as the left behind to remember. That's our, that's our duty. It's our service to those that we've lost. Hmm. And I mean, uh, God, I feel like I could talk to you forever. I just want to touch Same. real quick. Yeah. Um, I mean, your two, your novel after Anna Tevka is, uh, it's chronicling what happens to the characters of Hoddle and Perchik after yeah. the normal story of Fiddler, but then White Hot Grief Parade is the memoir you wrote, um, about losing your dad to cancer when you were 18. So mm. yeah, you're, telling stories and you're feeling it and god i uh, we're gonna have to do part two and okay. dive in I'm, all I'm this down. And, and i'm down check, check the show notes listeners for i'm gonna have links to these books because you have to read them they're great thank you hang on everybody we're just gonna take a quick break all right now we're back so the three questions i ask everyone to wrap up the okay, first great. one the first one very simply is just what motivates you connection yes Perfect. Okay. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? Two things. The path to success is curved. And two, success is not about what you do. It's about how you feel about what you do. I like that. I'm gonna get that tattooed on my butt. All right. Great. Third question. If you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Is this a theater production? Any production. I'm making it super hard. It doesn't, it's not, you're not talking about like a TV show or a movie. Any show, any show you want. Could be theater, musical theater, TV, film. Okay. <clears throat> this is going to be a surprising answer and I will lean into the enigma. The great 1991 classic Frank Oz film, What About Bob, starring Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> why why that movie because it's oddly profound it means so much to me and i'm just going to give you a quick th okay it was my, one of my dad's favorite movies it was a it was a huge part of our family life i loved this movie so much that when i went away to summer camp i couldn't bear the idea of being without this film so i with my little tiny allowance money went out i bought a 120 minute cassette cat's eyes cassette <laughs> held a microphone up to the film and recorded the film onto the cassette so i could listen to it at summer camp wow it is like to me it's more than what about bob this movie it's like the book of bob 
it is like the I Ching. I just think it's, and it's a perfect example too of how deeply profound thoughts exist through hysterical laughter. I probably haven't seen it since the early 90s. I need to go back. I need to go back and watch it. It's, it's, it's deep and great. Have, did your view of it change as you got older? Of course. I mean, yeah? it's like a, there's nothing like a rereading or a rewatching, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, I, the first time I saw this, I had never been in love and now I'm, you know, or I didn't have children or I didn't, you know, you, you, you return to art and the art is the same, but you are different. And so it, it's just, it's a, yeah, it's a very important film to me. Mm, that's beautiful. Okay. So where can we find you online? Where can we connect? Okay. You can find me um, at my website, which is alexandrasilber.net. You can find me on all social platforms at Al Silbs, A-L-S-I-L-B-S. And that's it. We're at the stage door. Come say hi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I am at uh, I, theater underscore podcast on threads, Instagram, TikTok. I try to do Facebook. Uh, leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Tell your friends. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Al Silbs, thank you so much. You are just the best. You are the best. Thank you for having me. It's a joy. Take a deep breath. Make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.